episode 8 of the Lost Words podcast was with veteran tour caddie Billy Foster. Uh, we talk about the relationships with Seve Ballesteros, uh, Lee Westwood, Darren Clark, amongst others. Um, but just a quick word on Billy before we get into the podcast. He actually raised £35,000 for the NHS uh, since we've recorded this podcast just by auctioning off his own collection of golf memorabilia. Um, I just think that's a wonderful effort and I think we should all just thank Billy for that. Uh, joined today by Billy Foster, a uh, caddy on the European and PJ Tour for 30 years. Uh, thank you for joining us, Billy. It's a pleasure, mate. Pleasure. I uh, just wanted to sort of go through your career. I know, obviously... Uh, don't take up too much of your time and there's been plenty of moments in there but uh just sort of a brief outline of you know what you've been doing over the last 30 years and and who you've been on the bag for so we'll just go uh, back to the start and how you got into it yeah uh 38 years ago um there was a tournament at bingley st ives uh my home club in yorkshire uh, and um the Lawrence battley international um Came to town, uh, the likes of Faldo won it and Sandilal won it twice. Uh, so I started caddying there as a 14, 15 year old junior. And uh, a mate of mine decided in 1983 to go, let's go to Spain on a six weeks holiday, which we did. Caddied down there for six six events and um, ended up caddying for Hugh Bayoki from South Africa. And uh, I came back. He asked me to come back the year after full time, so yeah, I've done 38 years out there. <laughs> and it's uh, it's quite amazing, isn't it? So uh, after it's the second bag, you're actually going to go back to as an assistant pros job. Yeah, I, uh, after Hugh Bayoki, I carried three years for him, and then I did five years with Gordon Brown Jr. Uh, unfortunately, Gordon passed away uh, at the back end of last last year. It's very unfortunate. Um, I did two Ryder Cups with Gordon at the end of. The 1990 season, I've been offered a job as an assistant pro at Ilkley Golf Club in West Yorkshire. And I accepted it and, and told Gordon that I was going to pack it in at the end of that current season. So I gave him six weeks' notice to find somebody else. And um, about three weeks before I started the, the, the job as an assistant pro, Seve asked me to work for him. So, it, you know, I had to make a decision. Seve Ballester is a legend or... Be an assistant pro myself, I enough <laughs> to live on beans on toast for the rest of my life. And I think you made uh, the right decision in the end. It wasn't a tough one, was it? <laughs> and uh, it was one of those things where, what sort of drove you to take the assistant's pro job? Was it sort of a case of not particularly seeing it panning out the way it did in the future? Or? Uh, well, listen, I, I, you couldn't make any money caddying. I mean, um, you know, you couldn't afford to get on an aeroplane. You had to get on trains and buses for two days to get to different parts of Europe. You were staying in tents. I slept in a bus one night. Um, <laughs> and you stayed in back street, horrible rundown pensions in, you know, in the back streets of Madrid and Barcelona and the likes. You know, rats would come in and run out with that bad. You know, it was, there was no, no, obviously no mobile phones, no internet, no yardage books, no range balls. You weren't allowed in the clubhouse, etc., etc. It was a tough existence as a caddy. So, I only did it to do a bit of travelling around Europe and, you know, to to learn a bit more, you know, about playing better golf myself, watching the best players in Europe. So I only had two years in mind to do a lot of travel and learn a bit about the game and, and then try and play a bit better myself. But uh, I ended up getting for seven or eight years before that opportunity came along and I thought this is the right time to get out, you know. So, uh, But then Seve came along and my, my plans changed again, you know. And that was uh, sort of towards the end of Seve's career, wasn't it? He would say he'd, he'd won his major championships. And... Yeah, he'd, he'd won his major championships, but you know he still 
it was very Jekyll and Hyde character at the time, you know. I mean, his bad was awful. You know, I could almost beat him myself. Uh, <laughs> and then he'd go on these runs for two or three months where he, you know, I mean, he, he had a phase the first few few weeks of caddy for him where he couldn't break eighty hardly. And then all of a sudden, in this, then yeah, and then in the space of a month, uh, he won the Chinuchi Crowns in Japan. He got beaten a seven-all playoff at uh, the Spanish Open, and then he won the PGA Championship at Wentworth, and then won the British Masters at Warburn, all in the space of four tournaments. So it was it was incredible. I was his good was unbelievable, and then his bad was absolute dirt. Did you did you? But learn... I had five good years with him. Did you learn a lot of stuff, even just from the bad stuff? Because obviously, you know, you talk about his determination, how desperate he was to break 80, and even if he was shooting 77, 78s, it was, uh, there was probably plenty to learn in those moments as it was just the wins. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you just learn so much from him, you know, his course management, you know, his his work ethic, his desire, his passion, you know, the way he never gave in, you know, it was almost a win-at-all-cost attitude, you know. He, he always said, Billy, we're here to win, second is not good, eh? and all that, you know. It was, uh, his, his work ethic and his desire and, you know, his never-to-die attitude was second to none. And you always sort of, uh, you know, you do quite a few stories, don't you? And, and often the one comes after the shot in Switzerland. But uh, uh, just how difficult was that shot? I know, obviously, you talk about it quite a lot. But... That was bonkers. Uh, it, it wasn't an option. You know, I mean, literally 99.99% of golfers would walk in there, uh, you know, sort of like assess the situation, going, how to strip it out, wedge it on the green and, you know, try and make the par. You know, it was uh, it was one of those shots that, you know, all these guys wouldn't even imagine seeing it, never mind playing it. And if, if you put them there now and they had to play it, it, it probably, you know, one in a hundred shot might, might come off. And it was it was crazy. You got a uh, you know caddies in the past with Bones caddy for Phil Mickelson, and, and they always talk about that they gave Bones one one shot a year where he could veto Phil's decision. If you had that opportunity with Seve, is that where you'd have stepped in and used that one? Uh, yeah, well, I think that the old veto, a lot of rubbish to me. That <laughs> like, I can't get my head around that one. For so, I mean, you know, it's, it's either the shots on or it's not, and you try and advise your player accordingly. You know, and you get them situations, you know, once every two or three weeks. So, I mean, t- to say they had a veto and all that, a lot of rubbish to me, like, but <laughs> I suppose if you're going to go down that road, yeah, it would have been one that I'll use my trump card then and say, chip it out, you'd plonk a light. But uh, Seve being Seve, just the magician, the skills, the genius, he, he managed to pull it off. And that's the sort of thing that you sort of had to prepare for when, when you accepted the invitation, wasn't it? You put out some strict deadlines and... He said, sort of like what he said goes on the on the course, and if absolutely. you had a problem, you talk afterwards, wouldn't you? Absolutely, you know. In, in the morning when I got ready, and I got me, you know, my trainers on, and me, you know, my waterproof jacket, and my gum shield, and my boxing gloves, and off we went. Yeah. <laughs> and when you know, when when it did come to the time where yours and uh, Seve's relationship ended as a caddy and player, uh, it was that, was it at Augusta that it actually ended, or? Yeah, it was at Augusta. Yeah, it. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it got a bit feisty, let's say, you know, uh, it'd been driving me bonkers the last few weeks and uh, it was getting even more stubborn than ever and um, just silly little things were, he were just picking on me, you know, and eventually he, uh, he got me in the in a straight jacket, I guess, and uh, I wasn't boarding on a nervous breakdown, so uh, all my emotions come raging out at him, like, so uh, I was shouting and bawling him at the front of the clubhouse at Augusta and 
got it all off my chest and uh, that was on the Tuesday prior to the week of the Masters and I carried the week of the Masters, he did okay and then uh, I got home on the Tuesday and as I walked through the front door the phone was ringing from his manager saying you're no longer required like you know so but listen after the, the few weeks after that he came up to me and gave me an hug and you know and he, he wanted me to come back in a way but I'd moved on with, with Darren Clark and Things change, you know, when relationships change, and you know it was time to move on, unfortunately. And um, you know, really from that day, I think Seve won the Spanish Open probably about six weeks later. And after that, he hardly ever hit another golf shot, which was very, very sad to to see. And that's the thing, isn't it? I think people don't realise, you know, the the strain that it can cause in relationships, and you know, there are big bust ups and and things that can come out, you know, whenever really. And um, especially with someone as, as hard-minded as, as Seve. Um, so then, as you say there, you moved on to Darren Clark. Uh, and what kind of relationship was that like? Yeah, I mean, Darren was a, was a great boss. Uh, you know, he was very respectful. You know, he was hard. He, you know, he, uh, he got pretty uh, fired up out there at times. You know, he uh, it was very respectful to me. Really, uh, I was a bit like a guide dog for Clark to a certain extent. He worked for certain players. You know, like a Sergio, really took a lot of his own decisions on board. I always asked you what you thought, but he had his own man. But with Darren, it was, I almost got the feeling like if it was an eight iron and I told him it was a, a three iron, he'd hit it. He just believed me in, in me 100%. You know, it was almost a case of I had to do everything but hit the shot for him at times. But uh, I had a great relationship with Darren. He, uh, like I said, he was a very generous boss, looked after me. And to this day, I haven't worked for Darren since 2007, and every Christmas, I come home and walk down the steps and there's always a box in front of my front door that's been delivered with 15 bottles of wine or whatever it is, you know. And to this day, even this Christmas, 13 years later, there's a box on my doorstop every Christmas. And I keep sending a message, will you stop sending me, you know, a Christmas present? But you're having it, you're having it. And that's that's the way Clarkie always was. He was a very good boss. And you were there for obviously some really, really tough times for for Darren and... uh it's sort of almost flattering one that he trusted you so much but also that he could confide in you in those sort of times as well yeah obviously uh, the most horrendous and you know you don't get situations like it touch wood you know but obviously I was there when when his wife passed away at 37 years old and you know mid-season he's you know he's Heather passes away and I think it was July August time and you know, and Darren had two young boys. I think they were Tyrone and Connor were probably six and four years old. So he's, it was almost like you could see his golfing career coming to a standstill and having to bring up his boys on his own. And it was a very, very difficult circumstance for him. And, you know, six weeks after Heather's funeral, he's, there he is walking to the first tee at the Ryder Cup uh, in Dublin, of all places, you know, with the um, emotion I'll never witness on a golf course like it in my life. And, you know, the atmosphere to go with it it was an incredible an incredible week that i'll hold dear you know as long as i live i'll hold it dear to me and that's the thing you know, a lot of people you hear the word fate banded around quite a lot but for him to have the chance to to seal a match and win sort of uh it almost sort of played into his hands that week yeah i mean i mean the first day uh, walking onto that first tee i mean the noise levels were so in, incredibly loud uh and I was, I'd walked to the tee maybe a minute in front of Darren and I walked into the middle of the tee and everybody stood up in the grandstand stamping the feet as Clark is getting near the tee and I was in the middle of the tee and, you know, I, I started crying. 
the, yeah. the, the raw emotion and noise levels was something I'll probably never witness again. I felt like Wembley Stadium were built around the first mm-hmm. tee, you know, and, uh, you know, I carried for Thomas Bjorn in the Open when he had a three-shot lead with three also playing, you know, left it in the bunker three times and I didn't even cry then, but I was very, <laughs> what I wanted to. That says it all, the, the, the raw emotion of walking onto that tee was incredible. You know, and to win that match against Mickelson and DeMarco was great. Uh, you know, and then the next day they went out and beat Tiger and Jim Furyk, which was another fantastic victory. Uh, and then to cap it off, winning his match against Zach Johnson was, uh, it was hard though. You know, I mean, he all like a hundred foot put on the 12th hole, I believe, to go four up. And as you walk to the 13th, you just know your boss when you spend 30 weeks a year with your boss, uh, 10 hours a day, eight hours a day, whatever it is, you just know. He can read the mind, and I just knew it'd gone. Even though it was four up with six to play, you know, if I'd have been a jockey, I'd have been done for excess whipping down them last rows. <laughs> I could see him sort of like looking to the skies at Heather, and he was he was almost breaking down on the golf yeah. course. So uh, to sort of like whip him home and get the job done was uh, very difficult, but unbelievably emotional, and uh, obviously the dream the dream ending of that week of the Ryder Cup. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing is that, you know, obviously everyone sees the positive moments in there and, and how how well he done, how well he come out to win his Open Championship and things like that, but just how difficult was it, like you say, was that probably one of the hardest moments you had on on a bag just to get him through that those last few holes? Yeah, there's nothing else comes close to it. Yeah, Nothing else comes close to that. I mean, just pure and utter raw emotion at its highest, you know. And you, you touched upon there as well um, that you sort of caddy for Sergio and, and Thomas Bjorn. How long are those relationships that they last? Uh, I've always had long relationships. You know, I mean, Sevy was five years and uh, Darren was 11 years, I believe. Westy was 10 years. But I mean, Sergio and Thomas were about 15 to 18 months. It was uh, both unbelievably great players and, and did really well with both of them. You know, Thomas uh, played really well. Um, could have won the Open got to the final of the world match play, won the Dunlop Phoenix in Japan, Sergio got to number two in the world. You know, they were very successful, but, uh, you know, it was uh, the feisty characters, to say the least. So, <laughs> you know, it's not they weren't the easiest of jobs, but both phenomenal players. And I think you've kind of, if you look back through who you have caddy for, and we've, we've talked about quite a few of them there, is you have generally taken on those sort of characters that will, will push a it and will sort of reach the boundaries of, of a relationship if you like so you've never taken an easy bag where it's kind of funny I know well, with Westy you had a good relationship and things like that but um, how difficult was Sergio in comparison to to Seve for example with, you know a lot of comparisons get made between the two yeah well they're both both feisty Spaniards you know the Latin <laughs> blood comes out in them and uh, you know I mean I've worked for some cycles if you had them if I had them all in a room together with me it'd be like a scene at one flew one flew over the cuckoo's nest like you know but uh, <laughs> yeah there's some proper cycles in there but all of them to a man, I mean, in their own right, fantastic golfers. I've been very fortunate to work for some of the best players in Europe. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, obviously, Lee Westwood is uh, one of your longer relationships and uh, possibly the most personal. I know when you sort of get interviewed, it was, you know, your best mates and you did say that it was kind of the, the most enjoyable time you had as a caddy. Yeah, well, like caddying for your best mate at times. I mean, Lee, you know, we're very fortunate. We, we were had the same sense of humour and we were on the same wavelength a lot, you know, so we could read each other's situations and we had great fun out there on the golf course. Don't get me wrong, you have to be 
serious for that one minute that you're discussing a shot or whatever. But as soon as you did the shot and you're walking along, it was uh, Hancock's half hour. Like, you know, we, we had a good laugh with the best of them. Like, so it was, uh, yeah, really enjoyable job. And, you know, I went on a couple of summer holidays with with Lee and his partners and, um, you know, a ski trip and stuff. So we spent time away from the golf course as well. So it was uh, special times. And, you know, and he got to world number one and, you know, and it's well documented. He, he wasn't putting his best and he still got to number one in the world. So it just goes to prove what an unbelievable, unbelievable player he was and still is. And that's the thing I was going to get touch upon there is obviously you said that you got to number two in the world with Sergio and you've caddied for Seve and, and Darren Clark and people like that. And, but, you know, Westwood got to world number one. A lot of people said, you know, it's where people were having down years and there was, you know, Tiger wasn't there and things like that. But that's taken away from what an incredible season he had to, to actually reach that number one. Yeah, I mean, um, you ask any player on tour, you know, if you, if you say who's the best ball striker on tour the last 15, 20 years, you know, you'd always hear Sergio's name and you'll hear Lee's name from... from from the best players in the world, you know, he's he's a well-respected ball striker, if not, you know, probably the top five of the last 20 years. And and just how unfortunate was he? I mean, he's had quite a few close runs at, at major championships and certainly, you know, now that Sergio's got his, it sort of comes down between maybe Westwood and, and Colin Montgomery as the best players that went without majors in the, at the peak of their career. Obviously, Westwood's still got a great chance of, of winning one and, and I hope he still does. Um but, you know, just how close did he come? Well, to put things in perspective, if if you look at the guys that haven't won a major, uh, the two guys that have been in the top three, six times are Sergio and Monty. And since then, obviously, Sergio has gone on to win the Masters. So the second best is Monty at six. And the only other guy in front of him is Westy. And it was nine, but obviously he finished... Uh, yeah, it's nine, yeah, because he finished fourth at the Open last year, didn't he? So, yeah, he's, yeah. he's had nine top three finishes in major championships without winning one. So, stats-wise, he is comfortably the best player never to win one. And obviously, but a lot of people do I still think he can, though. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. A lot of people do focus on the putting side of things, but to put yourself in that kind of contention that many times and to win over you know nearly 50 times worldwide, you can't be as bad a putter as people focus on. Obviously, that... In you know when it comes down to it, obviously he did miss some vital putts, but you know he wasn't a bad putter. We can't we can't say that surely. Uh, in the nineties and the early two thousands, Lee was up there with the best boys in the world, and yeah. then he had a slump. He had a slump for the start of the two thousands, and he came back. He wasn't quite as good a putter as what he was in the nineties, you know. And then, um, but like you say, you put yourself in contention that many times. The highlights on you coming down the last nine holes of huge golf tournaments you know and um, unfortunately for Lee in, in them situations he hadn't had his fair share of the battle you know of holding him when it really really mattered but he's not a horrendous putter but it just gets highlighted that he's such a good player and he knocks it close that often that it gets more more highlights I guess do you think from the outside looking in, I think like you touched upon there that you know, amongst the players he gets the respects he deserves, but do you think his career has actually been underrated just for, you know, the amount of times that he hasn't won maybe in America and he hasn't won the major championship? Does it get overlooked how much he has won elsewhere? He possibly does, but the other thing you gotta remember is he never he never played on the PGA tour. So they can say, Oh, Lee Westwood never won in America. 
he was never a member of the PGA Tour until yeah. he was like 40 odd year old, you know. So um, I think that's a bit a bit taken out of context to a certain degree. But, you know, when you have won, I think it's 44 tournaments he's won. Yeah. Um, you know, he's won the money list twice. He's, he's got to world number one and, you know, and he's had more top three finishes in majors than any other golfer without winning one. So he's... Plus, he's played 10 Ryder Cups. You can't say it's been a shabby career. Like, <laughs> it's, it's been, been exceptional. Good, it? um, and just in that, during that time, obviously, you had what well, I would probably consider, unless you can tell me otherwise, that the lowest point of your career is obviously when you had the injury whilst on Westie's back. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> challenging, to say the least. <laughs> um, yeah, he was... He'd just been knocked off world number one. He was number two in the world. And... Um, the caddies were playing a football match in America. They asked me to play, and I said, no, I'm not playing. I'm too old, and my job's too important to me. And <laughs> I didn't play, and they was just kicking a ball around before the start of the match, and there was a straight pass, and I stretched to, to kick it back, and um, stood in a hole, and my knee went one way, and that was it. And uh, I may as well have put an angry nade in my knee. I snapped everything that was going in there. It took me the best part of 15 months to get back to work, uh, which was, you know, very, very frustrating, and, you know, mentally challenging uh, yeah and obviously Westwood kept, kept the bag open for you didn't he for the first few months before um, you know he did, have, he did have to move on and, and how yeah. tough was that to take obviously you said you say in, in interviews that you, you, you understood and you had to take it on the chin but just how tough was it it was like your missus running off with your best mate like that's how it, <laughs> that's how it, honestly that's how it felt it, it was uh, man I wish my missus had run off with somebody like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these the isolation joking. periods. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all right. But, yeah, it yeah, was it's... it was tough to stomach, yeah. But you know, I got to uh, accept his side of it as well. So you just move on and try and bounce back. Yeah, you go back on the bag with him after after a year apart, and and was there any change in the relationship the second time around, or was it just business as usual once once you got back together? No, it was business as usual. Um, business as usual, but uh, in that time that I've been away, he'd changed coaches and changed a few things and he wasn't quite the player that he, he had been around the 4, 9, 10, 11, 12 seasons. Uh, he wasn't quite the same player, but uh, I think, funnily enough, I think the last couple of years he started getting better again. The older he gets, he seems to be getting better again. But certainly the last 12 months he started to play really solid stuff again and uh, he's put him with a claw grips and he's starting to roll it a bit better. So, like I said, he's, and he's fitter than he's ever been. So, I'd never rule him out still winning one. If we get to play one this year, that is. Yeah, that's it. That's the trouble we've got this year. But uh, it's funny that you touched there upon, you know, he's playing as, as good as ever, really, because that's that's where I was going to go with, you know, he's, he's not young now, but he's still young enough to compete at the highest level and obviously won in uh, Abu Dhabi earlier in the year and then had a good finish on the PGA Tour, funny enough, at the Honda Classic um so he's obviously you know hitting the ball as well as he, he always has done and uh you know the the change that he's had now um he, he's sort of taking his own ownership now which is kind of where you guys sort of drifted apart is that correct yeah that's right that's right but uh, you know he's um to be quite honest he's probably fitter now he's, than he's ever been you know even even in his prime he were a bit tubby like but look at him now you know he's in the gym every day like you know he's strong um and he's mentally in a better space than he was three or four years ago so uh, like I say still going to play great golf but yeah he, he moved on and started changing his, his way of thinking and um, you know our, our relationship was 
not the same as it was. So it was, you know, unfortunately, we had 10 fantastic years together and I'd still consider him one of my best friends. And But it was time to just realise it wasn't the same and for the benefit of both of us to to maybe progress, it was time to go a separate ways. And, you know, he's he's doing better and, you know, I'm, I'm now working with Matt Fitzpatrick and I'm probably in a better place than I was then. So it's worked out decent for both of us. So, but I'll always be good friends and, you know, I'm sure somewhere down the line we'll go on an odd skiing trip and whatever it is. So I'll always be friends with him. That's the thing. To be able to end a relationship like that in... You know, because a lot of people could take it, uh, you know, a lot to heart. And, and I'm sure you did, you know, when it actually came down to it, did find it tough. But you, you obviously saw it from his side of things and, and he saw it as much from yours. Obviously, the it wasn't just a case of he wanted to go separate ways. You were not doing what you're used to doing on the bag. You weren't given the yardages. You weren't doing the things that you wanted to do and how you felt that you, you know, the quality of golf caddying that you can give. Yeah, it had been, been bubbling up for... For a few months, really, uh, you know, his mindset had changed probably six months before it came to a head. And, you know, probably Lee probably wanted to change things, you know, weeks or months before it actually happened, you know, but he probably didn't want to do it, you know. But for the benefit of both of us, it, it was the right thing to do. So, you know, you just got to take these things on the chin and um, accept it. Um, you know, it's, it's never easy, these things, but... Uh, you got to look at it from a sensible point of view for, for both of your sakes, and it was the right thing. What do you think, if there was this one standout moment between the pair of you that you had whilst whilst on his bag, what was the best sort of moment you had together? I'd say undoubtedly when he um, he won the, the Dubai World Championship and won the race to Dubai on the same yeah. day and ultimately getting to number one in the world. So, you know, all those things... He won the money list and, and the Dubai golf tournament on the same day. So it was like winning two massive events all on the same green. So it was uh, that that would be the um, the best moment, I would think. And again, you mentioned that one there. Was it, you had to kind of give him a bit of a whipping, a bit like you did you know, with, with Darren Clark, just to get him over that, that final day to, to get into that victory because he was starting to have a bit of doubt in his mind. Well, it actually started on the. Uh, it started a couple of weeks early. Uh, I won't elaborate too much on, on the full story of it all, but it, it, it came about so the Tuesday night of the tournament before Dubai started. I just had the right amount, of four to five bottles of Heineken, and you know you really tell as it is. And I just said I just wanted to chat with him and uh, ran through a few things that I had in my mind and basically give him a bit of a grilling in a nice sort of way, telling him, basically reconfirming how, how good he is and not to be afraid of anybody else. And you know, and it rang true and uh, he took on a different attitude that week and and came home and, and won with won with ease. I think he won by five or six shots in the end, I believe. So, yeah, it, uh, I guess the bollocking paid off. <laughs> how much do you, do you put a mindset against the ability of a golfer so we, we, we talked about how Westwood and, and Sergio and people are the you know, best ball strikers on tour but how much does their mental state factor their golf that's everything mate. you know um, your mindset is at least 50% of the game in my opinion you know if you've got a great player and you think terribly you, you're not going to get it done you know there's some average players that think great I'll win miles more than good players that think terrible. You know, yeah, it's, exactly. it's a massive part of the game, you know. Um, 
you know, yeah. always say, uh, always let golf dictate your, you know, always let your attitude dictate your golf, not your golf dictate your attitude. Is 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 a saying that um, I try and use, you know, and it's it's never a true word said. Yeah, exactly, and that's the thing you hear all the time that the, you know, the best competitors get get the best results, and it, you know, it sounds it, it sounds easy to say and a bit cliche, but the best mentally are the ones that get over the line more often and 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 that's where i think you know where people focus on is the fact that he didn't win a major and there was always this question over his mental state but for him to actually go out and win you know 44 times and and even this late in his career as well he, he must be out there mentally with with some of the best generally speaking most of the time yeah i'd say so listen like you say he's won 44 times he's had a, and a brilliant career and unfortunately people sort of like Try and jump on him because he hasn't won the major, but um, he's been a, an unbelievable player, and um, certainly in Ryder Cups he's done more than his his fair share. You know, I mean Sergio at Paris uh, won his singles to be the top European point scorer, and number two on that list is Lee Westwood. So, yeah. You know, maybe Faldo actually, but uh, you know if Lee had won his match at Hazeltine, I think he would have been number two. So I think Lee's actually number three on the all-time point scorers for Europe so he's obviously been very strong mentally that's the thing and we just you, t- you touched upon there that as well that you have uh, now on Matt Fitzpatrick's bag um, how about how did that come about in the end um, well obviously uh, wind got <laughs> wind got round that uh, me and Westy had split up and you know you just I had a few phone calls few text messages of certain players of which Matt was one of them and um how to evaluate that, who I thought, not only who you thought might be the best player, but who you thought you might be able to help or who you might get on with better than certain others. And um, Matt's name came to the fore, so I decided to uh, to give Matt a call and um, had a meeting with him and discussed our visions and what we believe. And that, to me, that was the right choice at that particular time. So, just is, how good is he? Because... He, he, you know, he came out and he, he was a brilliant amateur, and there was a lot of hype around him from a young age, and he is still a young player. Uh, but I think his consistency sometimes gets overlooked. You know, he's constantly at the top of leaderboards. He's, you know, very competitive. He's won a fair share already, and and it's just a start, really, when you look at his age. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's only just turned twenty-five, and um, I think he's he went from about forty-eighth to. Excuse me. He went from 48th to 24th or 25th in the world last season. He finished fifth in Europe. So, like I say, he's won five tournaments. He's he's a quality player and he doesn't really have a weakness in his game. You know, he drives the ball exceptional. His iron play is great. Uh, he's got a good imagination. Chips very strongly and he, he puts great. And but his attitude and his work ethic is as professional as any golfer I've ever worked for. So. They call him Bernard Langer's love child. So his <laughs> his work ethic and his you know his mindset's very strong. So and if you if you could sort of again because he's someone that's being touted as a, a future major winner, um, where where if you could pick where he could win, do you think suits him most? Yeah, I think he could win anywhere, Tom. To be quite honest, you know he's he's, he's played he's played very well at Augusta. You know he's. He's a good uh, ball striker, keeps it low off the tee, etc. So you wouldn't rule out him doing well in an Open. Uh, he's done very well at the US Open because he drives it so straight. So, you know, you can't say one course would suit him better than others. You know, I'd, I'd see him having 
multiple chances, you know, if it's his day. Yeah, and, and you know, as you say there, you factored in not only who was the best player of the options you had, but who you could help the most. And is that is that something you, you see in Matt in terms of uh, you've got the ability there, he's got the work ethic, but maybe the experience that you can give him, it might be just be the, the final component for him to realise his potential? Yeah, I'd say the last 12 months that I've worked for him, we've, uh, we've worked very well together. Uh, I'm very honest, you know, and I, I have been honest from the outset with him that, I did detect certain weaknesses and, you know, I'm not afraid to voice my opinion that, uh, you know, that's not good enough and that's what we need to work on. And there's been two or three things that we've worked on over the last 12 months uh, and he's prepared to listen and he, and he works so hard and he's gone about putting them them wrongs right. So it's worked had, out well. He's had six runner-up finishes in that time as well, hasn't he? I know it sounds sort of, you know, there's not a win there, but that just shows how consistent and how, how close he is to... To winning quite a few times. Yeah, you'd probably say three tournaments out of four, he's up there with a sniff like, you know, so he's, he's very, very consistent. Um, you know, a couple got snatched away from him last year with guys, you know, I think Molinari shot 64 in Bay Hill to, to beat him in America from nowhere on a really, really tough day that probably 68 or 69 was the second best score of the day and Frankie shot 64. Bernd Weisberger shot 63 at the Rolex series in Italy to beat him by a shot. You know, so a couple have been snatched away from him. The, the only one that he probably could have won was um, the BMW in Germany, which was his to win. And um, not like Matt, he, he bogeyed 17 and um, he, he lost a tournament in a playoff. But uh, it's pretty strong. He's very consistent. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. We, we've got a it's another player that we can look forward to, you know, many Ryder Cups in the future and and you'll be a part of those again. And uh, it's one of those things that it just, I think people focus so much on the amount of wins. And yes, he's already got five, and but he's just an incredibly talented player. He's, like you say, he's one in three, one in four tournaments. He's, he's right up there, right in the mix. And uh, I think, again, you know, I don't like to use the term underrated, but I think a lot of people look at him as he doesn't have a standout part of his game when, when that's probably a bit unfair. I think his short game is excellent. Um, he's sort of perceived maybe as a, a straighter rather than a longer hitter, but he does get out a long way as well considering his size. Yeah, that's one thing he, he is underrated at. Uh, you know, people have this this view that, uh, you know, Fitz is a 270-yard off the tee straight down the middle. Well, you know, he's, he's not. You know, he gets it out there with, you know, he's never going to be a Brooks Copkin or a really, you know, one of these bombers of Rory, one of those, but, uh, you know, he's he's pleasantly average, you know, he'll be a 290, 300-yard return if he, if he wants to get one out there. He has a, you know, he tees it up and he has a different swing, he calls it the bomb and he can get another <laughs> 10 or 15 yards on it. So he's, he's not short by any stretch. And that's the thing, isn't it? He he has got enough in the tank that he can compete on any golf course. There isn't a golf course that he can turn up to and really feel that he's he can't compete. Like you said there with, with the major championships, there's not any one that you'd really pencil in, although Augusta's looked the most friendly to him at the moment. He can. He's got the game for anywhere, as it sounds. Yeah, I'd say so. With that, you know, he's very modest, but I think if you ask Matt the question, do you think you can win this, do you think you can win there, he'd, he'd say, yeah, he can. As which a lot of golfers inside the win what I'd like to do well but I can't but in his own mindset I guarantee you he'd say no I can win here 
so that's half the battle yeah exactly uh just a couple of questions before i let you go but obviously i want to let you get on um one of them being you, you constantly you've been linked to to Roy McRoy's bag i think sometimes a lot of it is you know you're an experienced caddy you're you're in between players and and he a lot of people focus on how much he needs an experienced member on his bag and has there has that conversation ever come up is it something that you you thought you were sort of in line for anything like that uh, i got offered the job in uh, 2008 uh, I was I was working with Sergio Garcia at the US Open at Torrey Pines and um, Joby Chandler, who was um, Rory's manager at the time, asked me if I wanted the job. And, you know, at the time, Sergio was number two in the world. Rory was 19 years old. I knew I knew how good Rory was because he yeah. came up through the Darren Clark Foundation. So I'd known Rory since he was 14 or 15 years old. I knew he was brilliant, but... You know, when you're working for the number two player in the world, you're going to leave for a 19-year-old boy that is going to be good, but it might not be brilliant for another two or three years yet. You know, so it was one of those that I thought about. I thought, well, you know, maybe it'll come up another time, but it didn't. But uh, listen, I'll be the first to say that he's got the right man on the bag now. You know, I don't believe that I'd make any difference, really. I think Harry's a, a very good, he's a great lad, first and foremost. He's a great golfer. He's probably a plus two handicapper himself. He's known Rory all his life. Yeah. So he's not afraid to say what he thinks on a golf course. And, you know, these Yardage books are that brilliant now. And the Greens books with the Adders and all that. You know, the information these lads have got now, the art of caddying's disappearing a little bit, really. That's why you're seeing a lot of friends, brothers, wives, girlfriends, etc. caddying because the information of the books is so brilliant. The golfers have got enough clout about them they know what they're doing um so to a certain extent you know gone are the days where you really relied on your only caddy doing the homework to go and draw their own books etc everything all the information's there for them so yeah i think harry's perfect for rory and um i think it's all this talk of you know rory needs a better caddy i, I don't agree with it i think harry's a great lad and i think he's a good caddy in his own right so let him leave him alone yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to touch upon there is I think a lot of people have been guilty in the past of if there's been, whether it be with Dustin Johnson with his brother or, or Phil now with his brother and things like that, it's very easy if, if something goes wrong to say, well, if they had an experienced caddy on the bag. But a lot of these players need the the comfort of having a friend or a or a brother or, or something like that. that. Actually, they may excel in that situation beyond having a player-caddy relationship, typical, if you like. Well, you just said to me there that, uh, you know, it's not enough for people jumping and slagging them off saying you should do this, you should do that. But Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson have both got to number one in the world, by the way. So where do you go yeah. from there? Exactly. You can't get any better than that with the, with the mates or brothers on the bag, so leave them alone. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think there's just always this thing that if, if a win doesn't come out, I mean, Dustin's only won one major and, and Rory hasn't won a major for five years, but that's ignoring the amount of, regular tour wins that they've had in that time a players championship wgc's you know these are not easy tournaments to win some and of the fedex cup play, play, yeah. play of the year in fedex cup Rory last year i mean exactly you know, it's majors are people people don't understand you go through a list right you look at a list for who's going to win the masters on old checker or whatever it is and you go down yeah. that list you look how many brilliant players they are you know even if you go down to you know justin rose might be number 10 in the world or louis ustairs might be 38th in the world and Brooks Kopkers etc it's it's so hard there's so many good players it's hard to win 
that's what people don't understand. It's... And there's only four of them a year. That's what I think people kind of overlook, isn't it? You know, you have to bring your A game that week. And the way Rory plays on, you know, at the players or, you know, to win the FedEx Cup, it would have been enough to win at Augusta by now. And and he has played well enough to win at Augusta by now. I think yeah. you just have to take the rough and the smooth. And I was just interested really on your take as opposed to, you know, not to say if you were on the bag, do you think he would have won one by now? But, you know, how how you perceive an experienced caddy like yourself versus one that, you know, is brought on for a comfort level and, and has developed. I think Harry especially has developed as a caddy as he's gone on as well. He's he's more than just a friend to him. He is, he is a brilliant caddy in his own right as well. Yeah, I mean, you're on, at the end of the day, you're only as good as your golfer. But, you know, the caddying's about saying the right things at the right time under the ultimate pressure. You know, when you're coming down them last nine holes of a major championship, it's having the thought process. It's like any golfer, if you're playing a, a monthly medal and you're off 15 handicap and you're, you're scrap, you know, you're level par gross with three holes to play, well, your mindset starts racing and all you can think about is getting to the bar to tell your mates you've just shot level par off 15, <laughs> net 57, you're a legend, like, you know, but I guarantee you'll finish 987 because your mindset is racing and racing and these pros are no different. They all feel pressure of major championships, and that's where you need probably an experienced caddy maybe to step in and say the right things at the right time and know when to show up and not say something stupid. You know, it's uh, but slowing the thought process down and making them evaluate the shot properly. It's like Tom Watson said, you win tournaments not by hitting the glory shot. You win tournaments by making less mistakes than anybody else, and that's where a caddy comes into his own, I guess, with experience at just hopefully saying the right thing at the right time and, and, and keeping the a lid on the player and, and not let him get in, you know, slowing his thought process down as such. Yeah, that makes, makes complete sense. And I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there that, you know, a lot of people look at it as a technical thing. Or do you give the right club? Do you do this? Do you do that? But actually, it's the relationship you have with them and, and that develops over the years. And like yourself, you know, you've been with, with Matt now for a year and, you know, maybe one or two, three years down the line, you're going to have an even better relationship with him. No you're very honest already and you step in where you, where you need to. But, you know, does that develop again even further because you've been with him for that much longer? Yeah, relationships, always, they're always developing, you know. You carry for somebody for 10 years and something will happen and you'll think, well, you learn from it. You know, you're always learning. And no matter how many years you've been out here, you're always going to make a mistake or say something that you're going to, I shouldn't have said that, but, <laughs> you never stop learning all the way through, you know, so your your relationships are always developing as you move along. That's it, exactly. Well, I'm going to thank you for your time there, Billy. You know, I've taken up enough of it. I know we're in a, a bit of a difficult time now. Um, everyone's sort of stuck indoors and, and not knowing where, where the next bit of a sport or, or normal life is coming from. But, but it's been really, like, really great to hear from you. And I think you've given someone some relief, especially during this tough time. So thank you for coming oh. on. Thank you, Tom. All you can say is, um, you know, good luck to everybody and uh, stay safe and stay at home. All the best. Yeah, thank you very much, Billy. Cheers, pal. Cheers.